You are listening to Classicism and Conversation, a project of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, examining the relevance of the classical tradition today. This show is sponsored by Historical Concepts. You can find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts. From the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, I'm Kellen Kraus, and this is At Home, a vicarious look at today's creatives. These are their stories of what it's like to live as a designer. You can follow along the At Home miniseries with a special photo log on classicist.org. I'm directionless in a lot of ways. For my own house, I love a little bit of everything. This is Kevin Clark with Historical Concepts. I jokingly say we live in the suburbs, but we live in Virginia Island neighborhood of Atlanta, and it was a trolley suburb in the early 1900s, late 19-teens, 20s and 30s is really when most of the buildings were built. I grew up in suburban Chicago, so far north that people from Chicago would say, oh, that's next to Wisconsin. Truly life-changing was going to Rome in my junior year of college at Notre Dame. I actually remember talking to uh, a buddy of mine, he was my boss at the time, at OKW Architects in Chicago. He had graduated Notre Dame probably 15 years earlier, and I had worked the summer before the Rome program, and I said, man, I'm just excited. He's like, oh, I'm so excited for you. I said, what should I expect? What should I be surprised about? Give me some advice. He's like, don't worry about it. Going over there. It's going to be so easy. You're going to assimilate so easily to the culture over there. He said, the culture shock is going to be coming back. And he 100% hit the nail on the head. I remember 10 months straight in Rome, and I come back to my suburban Chicago house that my folks had. And mid-morning, I wake up, and I go to the fridge, and I look for some milk, and we're out of milk. And I think, I don't have a car. i got to borrow a car. But I go to the grocery store, that's probably like a six, ten minute drive and in and out of the grocery yeah, it's, it's kind of a time consuming and not enjoyable trek just to get a half a gallon of milk. And I flashed back to a week earlier and life was if I was out of milk, I just walked around the corner and went to DPRD and <laughs> got my milk and probably ran into some folks that I knew or, or recognized between there and, and the place where we lived. And so it was just that life-altering, eye-opening experience, obviously at, a, at an age of 20, that I could not imagine not living in town. And when I had the opportunity to just uh, block from the office, that really solidified it, lifestyle. When I met my wife, we actually joked we met on eHarmony. One of the things that you do early on is you send these questions back and forth to one another. And I was trying to trick my now wife, probe into some of the things about them. And one of the questions that was a preceded question was, where do you envision living in 10 years? The answers were pretty formulaic. It was like a big city, a townhouse, a house in the suburbs or the country. Those were sort of the options. And so she chose a house in the suburbs and it almost didn't get past that. I really thought like, maybe I don't need to, maybe we don't need to take it any further if she's going to choose a house in the suburbs. But we ended up going on a date. I got to unpack that question a little bit, figure out what was the, the root of that question. And the other thing is I found out that 
she lived in Midtown. And why did she live in Midtown? Is because she wanted to be able to walk to the MARTA station because she traveled a lot for work at the time. So she said, gosh, I don't want to drive to the airport. It's so convenient that I could just walk up the block to the MARTA station. And she's like, you know, I'm a, a half a block from Piedmont Park, which is our great Central Park in Atlanta, also designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. She was two blocks from uh, the High Museum of Art, fantastic art museum, the Woodruff Art Center right next to it. And so she loved all the cultural and urban aspects. <laughs> and I said, why in the heck did you pick that you would live in the suburbs? And she said, well, I what was my other option? You know, and, and I explained to her she could have chosen the option that she was living in right then. And so thankfully, I've, I've made her drink the Kool-Aid, though I think she already was drinking it before. Urban lifestyle where you're not 100% dependent on the car. It's just a great, great life. Of course, we're just about a mile and a half from Midtown, <laughs> so it's not really the suburbs, but it was not just 100 years ago on the outskirts of development. My house in particular was built in 1935, an English arts and crafts cottage with actually a lot of deco influences and some of the hardware and lighting. We've lived here for about six years. Me and my wife, Lynn, we've got two kids who are ages five and seven. We lived in a great little bachelor pad condo, two-bedroom condo in Glenwood Park. I walked to work every day for a couple of years. And then the family outgrew that. And my wife said she wanted to find a place within walking distance of Alon's bakery. It's a great little bakery here in Atlanta. And put a pretty narrow radius around where we we're going to look. Fortunately, the schools here are pretty good. And so we stumbled upon this house. It was great, a great find, as I said, about six years ago. And we love it. Love the neighborhood. Can walk to probably 20 different restaurants and bars, a bunch of shops. It's a great, great neighborhood. We live on a bifurcated street. It's, it's a boulevard. Lanier Boulevard is the name. The neighborhood was planned in that uh, Olmsteadian pattern of romantic streets. And so we've got this winding boulevard that actually connects two of the commercial nodes, Morningside at the north end, and then the intersection of Virginia Highland, which was a trolley stop at South End. It's been a great spot for us, and we like it. This is a great house for me because, like me, it's balanced without being symmetrical. As you come to the front, there's a very strong gable form in the center but with a fireplace chimney on the exterior. And to the left, a pair of windows, which is the office. And then on the right, archways for a front porch that's recessed in the volume. A small front porch. The door is actually to the left, so you actually don't see the door from the front, a sidewalk. It's, it's on the side of the front porch. It's something not atypical for Craftsman-style house, which this was a decade descendant from. And you walk into a main living room. The house is really just a box. And actually, the original house, this is one of the best things about the house, is that the people, when we bought it, hadn't really screwed it up that bad. Uh, a lot of old houses that you find go through renovation after renovation. So you're having to undo past mistakes that have been made. For the most part, the core of the house was really intact. And the house when built, 1935, was a three-bedroom house. And in total, it was six rooms, I guess. Uh, living room, dining room, small kitchen, and then three bedrooms. And two of the bedrooms shared a bath. It's funny, we, we actually have the original tile still in both of the bathrooms. One is very pink and one is very blue. <laughs> which surprised me when I think about this as like a 1935 spec house. <laughs> Some builder was just like, we're going to have the boys bath and we're going to have the girls bath. <laughs> and 
And not surprisingly, or maybe stereotypically, the girl's pink bathroom has a tub in it. And the boys, no joke, the, the bathroom dimensions are three feet by nine feet. And that has a shower in it, a sink, and a toilet. And actually had two doors at one point, one's since been closed up. So good luck figuring out that floor plan. <laughs> My in-laws call that bathroom the SS Clark because it's so small that they think that it belongs on a ship. The core of the floor plan hadn't really changed much. The previous owner got rid of one of the bedrooms and turned it into sort of like a family room, opened up the kitchen a little more. And then they added an upstairs, but without really affecting the roof line from the front street facade. So we've got three bedrooms upstairs, which feels like way too much space. We've got five bedrooms for four people, but man, do we just use every inch of it. <laughs> so the whole house is about 2,400 square feet. It lives well, really well for us. The best part about the house or the most unique part about the house maybe is, is the backyard. So the lot is 55 feet wide and, a, and almost 300 feet deep, which is pretty atypical for even the neighborhood here. Most of the lots are much more standard, 150 feet deep. And our lot actually backs up to the county line. So we were truly the edge of development in Fulton County and the Atlanta portion of Fulton County for quite some time. And so we've got a creek in the backyard, which is the boundary between Fulton and DeKalb, which separates the city of Atlanta from its neighbor Decatur. And because of the arching street that we're on, we're actually on one of the deeper lots where most folks were in more than that neighborhood setting. And so we joke, we walked into the house with a realtor and it was a hot market. And I think we had sent her a note on a Saturday saying, oh, this house looks nice. It was probably eight o'clock in the morning. And she called within 30 minutes and said, if you're interested, you need to go take a look at it. And so three hours later, we're, we're taking a look at this house. And it you know, a great little house from the outside. It had, at the time, a little white picket fence, which was maybe charming in a, a storybook kind of way. And we walk in the house, and I don't know, probably the third thing that we saw was the pink bathroom, which is still the pink bathroom. And there are two plaster hands growing out of the wall. And it's the most bizarre thing. They're in the bathtub, palms up. They're about shoulder-width apart, I suppose. And so you're looking at these arms. They're up to the elbow coming out of the wall. And the best we could figure out is that maybe they held a towel rod um, at one point. But we looked at that. Again, we hadn't been in the house for, for 10 minutes. And we just laughed. And we're like, yeah, we're going to we're gonna buy a house with hands coming out of the wall. <laughs> and then we carry on with the rest of the tour. And we walk to the back porch. And it opens out onto this expanse of property. In fact, it's fairly untouched in the sense that it's wild. We don't really have a grass or, or a yard or anything. It's really just sort of a natural trail in a fairly forested area backing straight to the creek. It's just this fantastic oasis in an otherwise busy city here in Atlanta where we've got the front yard. We're just, what, 35, 40 feet set back from the sidewalk here. And then in the back, it, the property just feels like it it kind of goes on forever, sort of undisturbed. So the back porch sold us. And by the time we got back there, we kind of forgot about the hands. And here we are six years later, and my wife has now adopted the hands. They now get gloves with the different seasons. So we get mittens in the winter. I think they've got gardening gloves on in spring. Though she just gave me permission that I can take the hands off the wall. <laughs> that bathroom has been on my to-do list for quite some time. 
we don't have much in the way of free time, but we certainly do have a, a boatload of projects as I look around the house and see things. My wife works from home. She manages a team of about 50 people uh, across the nation. And so while she has an office downtown, since none of her team is in Atlanta, she actually works from home most of the time. Probably about three years ago, I was eyeing this guest bedroom, which in truth was our junk catch-all room. I was like, that looks like a great place where we can have an adult room. If you're going to work from home, honey, don't you think you deserve a nice office? And she said, okay. And she's the financial one in, in the couple here. So she said, how much is it going to cost? I said, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, I'll pull some deals with some people that I know. And we managed to get this office approved by her, which was great. It was the front bedroom. And it's just a very simple rectangle. It's probably 12 by 14 feet. It's got a little closet in it. I scared her when I told her that we were going to paint the entire thing blue. And she said, what do you, what do you mean? You mean like that, that song from like the late 90s? Eiffel 65. She started to sing it. I was like, we're going to paint the whole thing blue. and It's going to be phenomenal. And now she agrees. It's this wonderful blue cocoon here. So the whole thing's a warm blue color. We've got one wall of built-in bookshelves, put some V-groove boards in the back, ended up coffering the ceiling, which was an interesting experience with the craftsman that was working on this. I had this great plan for this coffered ceiling, and he came in and said, after he started it, you know, you've got about a two-inch difference from the center of the room to the edge of the room where the ceiling is sagging. <laughs> what should we do about it? And he gave me the price to have the guy rip out all the plaster, shore up the ceiling and redo it level. And I said, hey, what if we just got a three-eighths inch piece of plywood <laughs> and flattened it out that way? He said, yeah, that may be a less expensive way to do it. And so that is what we have. We've got some birch plywood that's making the panels up in the ceiling. But no one is any the wiser. The interiors originally, best I could tell, were fairly craftsmen and the really simple one-piece backband trim around all the doors and windows, the plaster walls. I mean, the trim is just basically as simple as it gets. We've got a picture rail almost everywhere, which we use. And then to add this character, we threw in the coffering in this room and made it work well with the, the windows that we have. The window, the front windows have a good diagonal pattern which was interesting. That was just on the front. And then on the side windows, they went to a standard six over six. So these are the original Wait and Chang double hung windows. They actually had ropes. So they're weight and rope. And most of the ropes have either fallen off or been painted over. And I'm not going to fix those. <laughs> you can open them for sure, but they're just not kind of uh, balanced the way you would. And actually this... I know that you can open them because this piece of wood that is our desktop. So I, I worked with a local group here, actually Willis Everett, who's supplied a bunch of floors for us, supplied this oak top for us. So it's white oak and it actually is glued up staves, but it's actually a full length. So it's about 14 feet long from one to the other. And they couldn't figure out how to get it in the house. So they actually got it in through the window. We got a lot of fun things in, in this uh, in this room. It's kind of a fun lamp, which is pretty intricate. All the shades are six different scenes, and this edge class is pretty phenomenal. 
little marble base there. Some nice art from some folks. Even some art from me. That's from Agrigento, maybe. Got some great old chairs from my wife's great-grandparents. We don't actually know much about them. It's funny. I was asking Lynn's uh, mom about it, and she said she actually doesn't she doesn't know really anything about them other than uh, other than where they came from. They're a great sort of Victorian style with some etched rose and some sort of floral decoration and then what I would call the lower back support at a midway height there in the chair. Very unornate on the legs, and they've since been recovered a number of times. But they're, uh, they're sweet and... One's mom said, hey, we could totally recover those. And I was like, I've got just a blue room these can go in. One of the other interesting pieces in this room is these very special plates that we have from Lynn's great-grandparents. They are unique in the sense that they are very plain white dinner plates, but they survived the Chicago fire, and they actually have scar marks to, to show for it. So... These were in Lynn's great-grandparents' cupboards, and they lived in Chicago, and they would put straw between the plates as they stored them in the cupboard to keep them from scratching each other. And during the fire, the straw actually burned patterns onto the plates. So it's a pretty fascinating piece of history here we've got two of in the house. Lynn's great-grandparents were in the China business. Originally in Boston, and then in Chicago, too. Her great-great-grandfather founded Abram French China Company, which was in Boston. They actually had a great old building, which still exists today. I think they founded the company in maybe 1849, working with Limoges, France. They imported all their china from eight pieces. We've got a few, a few dishes from them. The kitchen has not been renovated yet that's next on the list if this becomes a house we're in longer just kind of picking off one room at a time it does not function well so the kitchen and actually the couple before us updated it they lived in the house for 18 or 20 years and they updated the kitchen and it's fine it's actually just a galley kitchen except it's four foot ten from one uh, face of, of counters to the other. And that is just a half step too much to make the back counter at all helpful to your front counter. So all the appliances are, are on one side and then the other counter has a, a bar. Actually, I guess it's got our appliance garage on the other side. But it really makes for an inefficient distance when cooking. Actually, the biggest problem I have, and I do, do most of it, is the plating. So... I can do great stuff with cooking. I have just enough prep area, and we've got a Miele electric cooktop, which is also a challenge coming from gas mostly. But it's clean and it's simple. But the problem is that when you finish the meal, you got to figure out where you're going to plate this thing. And usually the island is covered with my kids' homework or the mail or something else, and it's just far enough away that it doesn't feel like it's really part of my work zone. So I need it to be a little closer. But redoing a kitchen sounds like a big project. And it sounds like that means you would go without a kitchen for quite some time. <laughs> and so I've not been able to convince uh, my accountant to uh, release the funds there for the kitchen yet. And or make do with a 
microwave for uh, for a few months while we don't have a kitchen. I got a grand plan in place, but that may be in our next house. I do most of the cooking. A lot of folks that my wife works with are on the West Coast. And so she tends to have busier evenings than mornings. The normal process is pick up the kids from after school and, and I come home and I make dinner for everybody. And it's usually pretty exciting. One of the nice things about quarantine is, you know, teaching my kids table manners. And not that they haven't had table manners before, but just the other night, I, you know, I kind of pulled out the proper place setting. Again, they're five and seven. So we had cloth napkins and, and, and a, a proper setting of the wine glass and the water glass and the salad fork, which they were just blown away by. You, have a, you just have a fork just for salad? <laughs> and, and so that's been, that's been great. They, I allowed them to drink uh, their milk out of wine glasses, which they have now requested every night since, which is great. It's not spiked. And I guess, thankfully, the vintage is this year. I love to cook and do quite a lot of it. And even when we didn't have restaurants at the ready, I was probably cooking five nights a week. And with our back deck, we've got great proximity to the grill. I've got my dad's Weber charcoal grill from 1970 that has been beat up in all sorts of ways, but still works just great. I've smoked Thanksgiving turkey on it and made some great prime rib and some lamb chops, done some just some fun things. Growing up with my dad, we would always wake up to a great Saturday breakfast. And so I've kept up that tradition, either Saturday or Sunday, just blowing it out with a great breakfast. And sometimes have even done breakfast out on the grill, which is always fun, different flavor that you get with the charcoal. The biggest difference was truly the commute. Glenwood Park was great. Our office was there and, and still is. Living just a half a block away for seven or eight years was very unique. The biggest difference truly was lunch. I would go home for lunch every day. And even if I was only taking a 30 or 45 minute lunch, I didn't have to get up extra early to make myself lunch and pack it to come to the office. I never went out for lunch or almost never went out for lunch. And then when I moved to Virginia Highland, which is still only maybe two and a half miles from the office, to 12 minute drive to, to get into work. That's just enough of a difference from the what, 120 feet <laughs> walk that I ended up obviously packing lunch a lot more, eating out a lot more at lunch and actually not seeing my wife as much at lunch, which is one of the other benefits of having a spouse that works from home and living within walking distance to the office. Um, but by and large, our, our weekends are about the same. In Glenwood Park, actually, we probably got out and drove more on the weekends just because of the time. It was a little more of an atypical bubble with industrial sites around it and, and bordering the interstate, a barrier to connection to the, the north development, where Virginia Highland, more established neighborhood and more residential and, again, sort of trolley suburban in scale meant that we rarely get in our car on the weekend because we pop up to the restaurant or some of the local shops. Mostly it's the, the grocery store and church is sort of our, our, our weekend to get in the car routine, which is not substantially different from Clinton Park, but maybe just a little different. You say you, you know all your neighbors, but we do. We, we know a bunch of our neighbors. We've had some great interactions here in Atlanta. <laughs> Everybody's out walking a lot, walking their dogs and their kids and jogging. 
getting out of the house and getting some fresh air, which I think is probably good for everyone. That plus having the neighborhood jaunts where you know the waiters and owners of the restaurants and certainly see friends every time you go into one of the shops. We've got a great little Italian place up at the corner of Virginia and Highland, Tuscany to your table. And this guy moved to Atlanta about five years ago. He was born in Tuscany. He actually worked professionally in Milan as a chef and in Rome and then decided, actually, I'm pretty sure he fell in love with a a woman from Atlanta and got married and decided to move here. And so he opened up a great little shop anyway, imports a a lot of things from Italy, some great wine. And actually we just bought a, a bunch of everyday dishes from him too that he brought over from Deruda, not too far from Siena. I regularly suggest things to my clients that I don't, I wouldn't do. And not that I wouldn't do, but that it wouldn't be probably the way that I would live or what would be appropriate for my house. In fact, actually, it's like the cobbler's kids, right? The cobbler's kids have no shoes. And maybe that's because the cobbler's really busy, and certainly I am as well. But uh, the, the truth of it is, is having clients is easy because I can listen to them, I can understand what they want, what their vision is. They might not really be able to understand their vision, but I think I can just kind of listen to it and hear it and see it pretty quickly. And I can run with it and I can get excited about it. And for myself, I'm, I'm directionless in a lot of ways. For my own house, I love a little bit of everything. And so it's really hard to settle on any one decision. Having clients as partners in the design process is so rewarding because it allows us to actually move in more of a linear path. I can get excited about what I'm hearing from them and get that feedback, pick up on a a little nugget of conversation about their family gatherings or the particular cocktail that they like or how they, or they have friends over every Saturday night and sit around and, and play cards. Picking up on just those little instances, not that I couldn't find those in my own life, but in working with them, I can see the solution with an aesthetic. And when I look at my house, I could imagine one of everything. I love very rich traditional details, but I love the craftsman period, and I love contemporary details. And and in fact, have some contemporary art in my house too, just because it's beautiful. I think I find value in that. And so settling on any one thing is so difficult for me without that foil of a design partner. And my wife, she always says, isn't this your job? I said, no, my job is to listen to what people want and to spit that out in a finished product, a finished design. My wife is very deferential in design decisions. It means that we have a lot of unfinished products, especially in an old house. Many thanks to our sponsor, Historical Concepts. Find them online at historicalconcepts.com or on Instagram at historicalconcepts. At Home is a production of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, a national nonprofit promoting the practice, understanding, and appreciation of classical design. To become a member and learn about additional programming, visit classicist.org. This episode was produced by Justin Kegley and Kellen Krauss and edited by Kellen Krauss and engineered by Justin Kegley.